This is John McGuire, and you are listening to Always Record on SyncBook Radio. Today, for episode 114, we have joining us synchromystic and musician Kevin Helcott. Thanks for listening. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven When you're down, when you're strange Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange People are strange when you're a stranger, faces look ugly When you're alone, women seem wicked When you're unwanted, streets are uneven When you're down Hey, Kevin. Hey, how's it going, John? Sorry for running late. I was Fine. catching up with some friends. I haven't, yeah, I just got back to New York, and so I just kind of lost track of where I was, and it took me a little bit to get home, so I appreciate you guys waiting and uh, putting up with my shit, so You're at least oh, we can no, record totally now. Cool. It was, yeah, it was nice to uh, catch up with David, too, so it's, it's all good. Okay, yeah. nice. We're going to repeat some of the things that we were saying, most likely. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good, because that... Uh, yeah, I was a little rusty on some references, so it's good that we did that. Yeah, so um, yeah, so if, if you, you're recording, yeah. So what were you guys getting into? Go ahead. Oh boy. Um, well, uh, I could go through it again. I guess uh, we were we were discussing um, first of all the OTO versus the AA in terms of like organization and. Um, I was asking some questions about what he thought of, like, uh, you know, Kenneth Grant and some of the evolution of the OTO. And uh, he, he was expressing, a, 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 I don't know if you brought it up or if you can say more about it, but there was an adjustment made um, to the Book of the Law by uh, somebody relatively recently due to the handwriting of Aleister Crowley, which is interesting because I was saying in um, The Law is for All, which is kind of a commentary on the book of the law written by Crowley, he expresses that there's significance within the handwriting and whatever, but it's the idea of, of changing um, text is always like a doozy whenever you're dealing with any kind of, I mean, it's its own form of scripture, whether you, whatever you, you think about it, I mean, that's, it's, it presents itself as such, or at least, you know, um, that's what it's meant to represent. So, to change a letter of it when it says not to change a letter, but also says that there's secrets in the handwriting. It gets interesting. Who changed it? Um, essentially, it's uh, I believe it's Hymenius Beta, the OTO. He's the outer head. Um, I can't produce his name right now. It's not even really important. But yeah, it's the Freighter Superior of the OTO in May of 2013. Um, based on... Um, some of the paraphrasing of the hieroglyphs on the stele of revealing, he changed uh, "Om let it fill me" to "Om let it kill me," 
um, based on, I think, another document of Crowley's where his handwriting um, seemed to emphasize kill more than fill. Are you saying that um, this is the actual original handwriting that is included in every book of the of every book of the book of the law? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's another document of Crowley's where um, oh. I think it was after after the translation or something of the sort. No, um, you I'm, can't I'm do sorry that. that I don't, yeah, yeah. That's the thing is I I I'm sorry that I'm not as sharp on the uh, history here because I'm just not too personally. Um, concerned, you know, with the organization, but um, it, it is something that that just kind of struck me because in the book itself, it 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 says also change not a word, you know. So um, I thought that was a very interesting move, and in that they released this document um, called "On the Fill On the Kill Me Fill Me Correction to Lever Legis" that you can reference for uh, why they went this way with it. Um, but yeah, I believe it's it's another document that they're referring to here. Trying well, it's to the, read this document. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I guess in so many ways, it's not the first of its kind. It's not the last of its kind. Every religious book in history has gotten fucked with in some way by someone with a political agenda or some kind of self-aggrandizing agenda. So, well, Crowley himself had a self-aggrandizing of course. agenda, which because of, but you could argue the same thing for Moses. So, I mean, I don't know. But. Right? Where, where's <laughs> yeah, the difference? I, I, I think it. Yeah, it's almost a. Uh, you know, a prerequisite uh, to be able to kind of let yourself um, find yourself in such a seat, you know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's weird, you know. Contemplating the irony of of him having this channeled after his experience in the Great Pyramid. So you have this whole connection to the Great Pyramid. Um, but then the fact that it's it's meant to work in a similar way towards Christianity than Christianity worked with the Old Testament. And so to say you have, you know, Mount Sinai where Moses receives, you know, the, the law and he he steps down. First of all, it's the first time it wasn't a law, right? That was the deal in Hebrew. So if you read it in Hebrew, he just gets this this message from the hand of God, goes down, sees everyone worshiping a calf, a golden calf, breaks whatever that was, and then goes back up and then writes it himself. Because the second time he goes up, it's not worded the same. It didn't come from God. It came from him. It says so. So you're like, oh, well, then you're also saying that this isn't just the Ten Commandments. This is actually the Torah because Moses wrote the Torah. So people connect it with that. This is he came down with the Torah, essentially. And then it was written from anger because he's so fucking pissed off or whatever. So it's like, oh, you have this book written from anger by the guy because the people weren't ready for the true law. And so everything is kind of a, um, an assisting humanity towards the point where they can actually embrace the actual law. Um, and so it's like this refinement that happens every 2,000 two years. There's a period of malleability that begins at a certain point and kind of ends at a certain point where you can make adjustments in ways that you can't in the, re in the rest of the course of the 2,000 years. I mean, that was what... I uh, took from uh, Crowley's writings concerning the, the shift of the eon. Um, and so that's, that's very in interesting then to be like, well, this is the law for the next eon is the, the aim of the book of the law. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's really something. Yeah, I, I definitely like that. You know, I, I think that's exactly what where Crowley saw himself you know, especially when he took the grade of, of Magus, you know, um, it was almost like he realized that, I, I think that's what's interesting about him in general, too, is that he kind of just kept following his uh, intuitive orders, you know, in, in the directions that he saw uh, most challenging at times and stuff, too. But so he, he put himself out there and, you know, Found, it seems like he almost finds himself at these at these stages that he can then produce the the evidence for in um, in different ways that to me stands out amongst other people who claim to be uh, you know um, prophets or geniuses, which are hard hard terms to to really use. But um, you know it, it, it's interesting. I think it, it, we almost have like the first religious prophet or, 
or so on our hands who was able to kind of in a in a more human way than any other and that that's kind of the part of the delivery of the message of the book of the law you know is that every man and every woman is a star and um so it's interesting there's a humanizing of of the of the prophet, it seems along the way too, you know, I don't know. Well, that's, what's so interesting. We're con- I mean, we're not contemporaries of this person, but we're close enough in time to be able to judge them with a certain amount of objectivity or the history or whatever hasn't been obscured to the point where you, the person's a complete myth. There's still traces of this person's humanity and their shortcomings, which he had many of. Uh, so it, it makes it an interesting discussion to be like, okay, well, what, I mean, it was a different time, different place, different politics, but I'm sure there were people with at least a open mind in the time of whatever, if Jesus existed or Muhammad or any of these folks that large followings have gathered around these prophets, what kind of conversations were had about them and like what people really knew about their personalities. It's like we have all this uh, source material and Crowley you can kind of judge him as a real man with real flaws. And then the question is like how much of that has been lost in these other stories and were these same conversations have been had thousands of years ago in a sense, you know, all kinds of different contexts and what have you, but what were they saying about that person? What kind of person were they really? And then 2000 years from now, will Crowley be hailed as this, you know, Jesus hanging on the wall of some church and no one knows who this person was really, or what they were really about and everything becomes obscured. And so it's interesting to project if the human race even lasts that long, we might get, we might fuck ourselves over by then. But if we make it that far, who knows? It's interesting to speculate for sure. He doesn't. He doesn't yeah. care about the um, masses uh, taking him in. Ultimately, because I think the he thing did. Is already over- overstepped. No, I think he did. S- you can see that he didn't by what happened with the thirty uh, third degree council uh, when they they uh, uh, did not permit him. We were having this discussion before um, this call, but that they d- they didn't permit him. To be, you know, you can go through every grade. You just get passed along up to thirty-two if you do the steps and whatnot. And it takes a council to give you admittance to be allowed to be uh, uh, honorary thirty-third degree Freemason, right? But they denied him that, and it was it was over his head um, that it was that it was permitted. And so I have a, a you know conjecturing kind of speculation on it, but. I look at that, and it's it it seems like, as far as that council is concerned, especially at that time, I don't think that they would approve of uh, his role in the propaganda, uh, sinking of the Lusitania, and amongst various things that he was a part of uh, with British intelligence and the political side of his occultism, and so and that's that's I was saying it's really interesting when you take Secret Agent Six Six Six, which is very empirical. And put it side by side with confessions, um, his auto hagiography, right? And uh, look at where he's going for a ritual, and look at where he's going for a purpose of espionage, and see that they actually are completely conjoined. Um, and you know that's that's got you know <laughs> that's got a different kind of implication than uh, I mean, what is magic, you know, and how how does he relate to magic? But my my point being is that like it, it, I could understand why he would be denied that by one on one surface level and then be permitted by the people who are above and how it doesn't even really matter what the people below think or what their position is because they, they they say it themselves, you know, I mean, this is the law of the strong. It's not the law of the weak. And so if the weak don't, you know, which they see as like the slaves shall serve. So it's like the people are just kind of, they're like, um, cattle, you know, um, until they're not, he's there's that's the the paradox of the matter is they're also like waiting and encouraging people to wake up and to not. It's almost like, well, the more Apollonian push we put on the people, the more they'll try and, um, you know, uh, fight back, and that's how you'll have a renaissance. And so he's pushing for a renaissance by introducing more control. Like I respect a lot about what Crowley said and, and many of his actions. He did kind of reject certain notions of what it means to be a guru but on the other hand he totally bought into that position 
Like yeah, you don't you don't think yeah. he was up to building a cult of personality around himself? I mean, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying then, is okay. is that ultimately, in terms of his 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 ultimate aim in the matter, doesn't require public acceptance. He he only care, and he doesn't even care about the lower orders' acceptance of him. He just wants the people at the top to accept because he had his his own aims in mind. Uh, but he himself, at different points in his life, even had different. Um, kind of slants on what those aims actually entailed. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. He wasn't ultimately consistent. He he evolved um, in his in his whole approach. Magic without tears for me is the best thing he ever wrote, and that's one of his very last things, which wasn't even intended to be published. Um, I think it, it's more telling as to his actual character than just about anything else because it's just letters, yeah. to correspondences. You feel the same way, Kevin? Yeah, no, I've definitely been attracted to that through my years of studying him as a, a real like strong and honest, you know, cut through kind of, uh, approach to his methods and the purposes of the methods and stuff. Um, you know, until that point when there's a lot of scholarly work that he was trying to lay down. Um, and like you said, he wasn't even really transmitting that to the, to the public so much as he was to students, which is really like the, the essence of his value you know, if any, you know, <laughs> right. He wanted to be accepted uh, as a poet. That was very important yeah. to him. You can tell that it was important to him because he spent, um, the vast majority of, of his inheritance just on publishing. He spent everything on publishing. I mean, we, and that's, we wouldn't know who he is if he, he himself didn't spend his whole inheritance on publishing his books. Uh, um, yeah, totally. but a lot of that, of the initial, um, you know, use of, of the inheritance was just on poetry. Just a ton of fucking poetry. Um, that's the majority of what he wrote was poems. Um, yeah, and climbing and stuff as well was definitely a big thing. I love his mountain climbing background. That is such an interesting <laughs> foreshadow for me. And just mm-hmm. he was one of the uh, part of the first expedition to try to climb K two, which I thought was pretty crazy. It failed. A glorious fail, but he tried and he set all kinds of other records. That's just, um, in digging into him, that was an interesting thing to find out, even though it's rather obvious on the other hand, it's like, oh yeah. Okay. Metaphorical mountains, genuine mountains. And yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Really cool. Uh, okay. All right. Just to a 180. Abby of Thelema go. What was, <laughs> I mean, there's so much to be said about it, so I don't know. I'm not going to offer up my opinion. I'm just curious what you guys think about it. Uh, like, well, what I was, mean, I mean, what, what, what did, was that? Did you think he was doing that for, to really accomplish anything? Did it eventually just evolve into hedonism and became pointless after the first few months? Or what was that? I'm going to leave that to you, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's another, another one of those things where I find that, you know, it seemed like Crowley in his life, um, constantly was trying to kind of fulfill, um, the right prerequisites to lay down, uh, you know, this, this law and, and this work that he found so, uh, important to bring to humanity, you know? So, I mean, I think establishing it was, was ultimately, um, a, a you know, noble endeavor. Um, it's, it's, it's the right, the right idea. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of interesting stories about, you know, the quality of, uh, work that might've been being done there from what it sounded like at times. But I mean, I understand that he definitely kind of got the, you know, laid down the foundation of, of setting up an actual kind of school and, uh, somewhat of a utopian, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of in the, the book of the law, you know, says, you know, uh, choose you an island, you know, fortify it. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting thing. I, I wouldn't call it a failure. I wouldn't call it like a, a real major success story. I mean, there's obviously the fact that it was shut down and all that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it wasn't even it was about really its own success. It was just like the book of the law isn't about its own success. It's about setting something into motion and planting mm-hmm. seeds, and that was meant to be a seed, admittedly so. And so, right. you know, if like if you want to know about specifically the Abbey of Thelema, my biggest recommendation would just be Diary of a Drug Fiend, um, because more than any other place that I've come across um, where that whole idea is 
specifically being this you can see his idealism and how he really he really you could argue that he was naive or whatever but i i wouldn't say he i would say he was naive but i i would say he was not naive in the way most people might assume because he knew simultaneously of what he was setting into motion and that kind of negates that because the idea of the commune and uh free love and uh free free like his whole thing with um, with heroin was like he was like well you know he really believed in in the extent of the capacity of the will you know he really felt that like a human being could get to the point where something could you could have a relationship with something which was actually harmonious when it sh- it shouldn't be you wouldn't expect it to ever have that ability because just people are too weak you know um, right and so that's why you'll see a lot of uh, thelemites today. Uh, you know, they'll, they do a thing like, and I don't know how true this is because you can never believe anything you hear about tool. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I heard that that was the thing with like Danny Carey and those guys is that they, they don't do substances in their regular lives. They have like, you know, families and they're doing their thing and it's when they tour or when they're recording, they just go to town. And that's in the Thelemic philosophy. Is you're, that's one of the things that gets stated in Diary of a Drug Fiend is that you ideally you I don't ideally, uh, but ideally you would you know <laughs> you, you only do the thing when it has a purpose. If there's or you know a real purpose that's for the great work. And so if you're doing this thing and there's nothing that's coming of it. What, you know, why are you doing it, basically? I mean, there's very much purpose is a huge part, like, that's emphasized when it comes to substances in general, uh, in the Thelemic philosophy, from what I gather. Um, yeah, I mean, it, just to chime in while we're at that point, you know, you, uh, the kind of, um, ontology of Thelema, you know, puts forth this, this idea that, you know, everyone is, is a star, everyone is this, uh, is the point of view of, of Hadith, you know, the, the direct experiencer of, uh, of all, you know? And, uh, so yeah, Philema definitely expounds the idea that, you know, you know, certainly setting that aside in general, um, you know, that a, a person's, uh, let's say enthusiasm and drive, uh, comes from kind of knowing what brings them joy and what's, what draws them forward and propels them toward their own true will, you know? So the idea is, you know, enjoy those things that, that bring you closer to that, you know? Um, and if, and if you will destruction, then you'll will that too. (laughs) But, um, but the idea is that, yeah, you know, the strong or, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the, like Crowley says, the, I think it's the, the sot drinks and is drunk, and the wise man drinks and gives glory to the most high God, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's all in how you enjoy these things and how you, you know, how you, how they serve the greater, you know, purpose of your life and the, the greater harmony of your life. And yeah, I mean, look at rock and roll, man. There's some people that sex, drugs, cocaine and alcohol is, you know, it'll get them through a longer life than some, you know, perfectly healthy people. And it, it's all about that, you know, serving that, that drive. And, and it's not in any kind of a weird uh, you know, I don't know, you know, obviously it's, it's all about that balance, which is also expounded in the Thelemic philosophy as well. You know, it's, it's definitely not an entirely hedonistic, um, philosophy when you, when you really digest, you know, the whole of it. But I think that that's the thing a lot of people find shocking is, um, you know, that's the thing. Thelema is, is one of the only paths that I found in the modern sense that, fully embraces, uh, personal shamanism, you know, and that's something that I've always been really interested in in general, shamanism and the role of the shaman and, and, uh, even the universality of that role, you know? So yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to talk about in terms of what Philema celebrates, you know, in terms of lust and love, you know, I think that's, that's, that's all often very misunderstood by, you know, conspiracy theorists <laughs> and, and other such folk. Right. But. Well, he's the ultimate, he's like, if you're going to point your finger at a conspirator or somebody with a cabal, 
he's pretty much the epitome of it. And so that's under, that becomes very understandable. Um, mm. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I would argue that there's, there are definitely real conspiracies and, uh, Crowley's involvement is, is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty direct, uh, when it comes to certain things. Uh, he definitely had, had no qualms with playing mo- multiple sides against each other and, uh, just kind of like, uh, being above the outcome. Cause you know, however, whatever the outcome is, it's in your favor. Um, he was definitely, he's about, you know, profit and profit, you know, <laughs> with a PH with an S. I don't think sometimes you can tell what he's saying though with his writing because it's intentionally obfuscating what he's trying to say. But he's always, I don't know, he's like a meta-meta thinker, so he's always, you know, hiding a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle. So he could say whatever the fuck he wants it to mean later down the road, and we could just be totally being taken for a ride, you know what I'm saying? So to say any of his writings or what he was doing to play people off, I don't know what his agenda was all the time. I can't make many conclusions about his agenda, because, like even said in the beginning, he changed a lot, he was never consistent. I don't know why you would try to take a consistent message from him. Well, they're well, whole, yeah. Okay, sorry. Oh no, I, I would just say that, um, and I'll let you get uh, your thought out too, David. Uh, I just wanted to say that I know Crowley uh, very intentionally um, in his writing and and in his you know instructions and stuff. Uh, there's a there's a kind of um, I don't know how to quite put it, but it's meant to kind of repel um, like people with with not that are without like mental fortitude or, or that, that drive to, to really deeply understand or to challenge their, uh, uh, preconceptions about a certain matter, you know? So I, I think he enjoyed really strongly using, uh, all kinds of potent language and symbolism and, and stuff, because, you know, for one thing, it, it's the psychedelic reality of all these symbols is, you know, their potency, their flexibility and stuff like that. But, um, I think he was trying to to attract people who were capable of uh, cutting through and finding out for themselves, you know, and, and that, that's something that if you really, really, really want to come to a deep understanding of uh, Crowley, um, what ends up happening is you also just come to a really deep understanding of where where he falls into place in a really long lineage of uh, of the human experience, you know, so that that's when it gets interesting when you start cutting through you start to learn some of Crowley's language. You learn some of his, his style. Um, and then you start to see, like I, I personally, I started to see, um, that he was really working with a current, you know, that it was, he stepped in line with this, uh, this flow of consciousness, you know? And, um, I think, uh, yeah, with a lot of study, you, you start to see when he's in, in trying to lead the, uh, um, those capable of becoming prey to illusion, he would let them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, that's, um, it, it's that's a tough a thing. thing. Yeah. He, he, he put that, you know, if you, if you read some liner notes, you, you can get, you can get a confirmation from him on some of that, you know, but it's hard to really tell how, how well, I'm not saying you can't decipher any of it. I'm just saying that he mm-hmm. is playing games all the time, not, not <laughs> massing any judgment, but to say mm, everything about, I, I don't know. I think there's just a lot of, well, it, it's only six years yeah. out or whatever from when he died, but it's still a lot of mythologizing and also taking his primary sources is still complex. It's not so straightforward as usual history would have you think of just taking well, some primary you source that. and, with um books you know practical magic it's actually emphasized in certain places that some some of those um parts are purposely manipulated when it comes to the actual workings because he he didn't he was putting up pitfalls for the people because you can't get to the place until you're you're not only utilizing your own intuition but thinking rationally thinking it out for yourself he didn't want to tell people, okay, well, this is what you do, and then have people repeat it, because it's, it's uh, that the kind of science doesn't work the same way because it requires so much involvement of the individual and their whole capacity. What I get out of him is that he's a forerunner of someone like Robert Anton Wilson that said, 
mm, I'm putting forward some ideas. It it doesn't mean don't question me. It's just here's a very flexible, I guess, ontology or whatever that then can be played with on your subjective level or your reality tunnel. You'll have different perceptions than person A who will have different perceptions than person C and so on. But you're still dealing, dealing with a similar source. But I guess if, you know, Kevin, your analogy with sort of bring theme and shamanism shamans are often equated with the trickster right and crowley i'll give him credit for that that he was one of the ultimate tricksters and just the fact of trying to invert perception playing with language the sorts of you know casting spells uh changing consciousness in that sense obviously i mean very very much a shaman and a spellcaster and uh one of the forerunners of, of popularizing those notions and making that so anyway it's just i never want to put anyone on a pedestal i guess so i'm playing devil's advocate a bit and been trying to question him a little bit here and just i think it's it's like i said it's an interesting case study it's close enough to our times where we can play with it and if we take it seriously as you know this person that had a revelatory experience and is the forerunner of this religion that who knows you know later down the road it's it's just funny to project but yeah. Those are just my general thoughts on it. But yeah, I agree with most of what you guys are saying. I'm just playing. I with take this. the whole book of the law, the slaves shall serve thing as like kind of like a child shall lead them. Uh, that it's not necessarily that the, that the slaves shall serve in the end, the same aim, but expressed in a di- like, it's hard to explain, but there's like a sleight of hand thing taking place that stretches out in Eon. Cause you have, on one level, you have a power structure, but then the thing that is the foundation of the power structure holds the real power. And like, that's the significance of every man and every woman as a star is that the power is actually evenly distributed, but they don't treat it as such. So it's almost like he's mocking the very people who he's assisting in, in acknowledging that there's going to come a point where these people who you're manipulating are going to wake up and the, the, like ricochet or whatever the result of them waking up is going to you know reform the whole thing the whole aim of what it is that they're that they're striving for because out of control you have a renaissance whenever there's an apollonian movement there's a dionysian movement and this is like why jack parsons seems to be so fixated on that idea is because what is jack parsons related to as as babylon you know or the the what is the meaning of babylon like for him it's all revolution which is interesting for somebody who's working with Nazis, <laughs> like to, you know, do this, the, the space program and the him to pan at every launch. And you have this giant phallus, which, you're, you know, that's a talk about a mega ritual. I mean, me- mega rituals are tied to Thelema like no tomorrow. That's that's the significance of the Lusitania, not just that Crowley worked for British intelligence and that, that can be proven and that he's a spy and all this espionage stuff. And what does magic really mean? on every level you know it's a there's there's definitely a a political side to it but it seems as though it's so in he he wanted to make it so in the public's face for one thing that ends up serving the powers that be because the more you put it in their face the more you can actually it that's that's in and of itself is a tool for mind control because if something is overt enough um you know you you don't accept it because you could so no one could tell that big of a lie could they so, like, I mean, that's, a, I don't know if that's a quote equated with Hitler or who, but it sounds like it should be a Crowley quote where it says, you know, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a big one. People are more likely to believe it. But it's it's true. And that's why the Lusitania worked. And that's why other false flag events have worked. I just find it incredibly interesting that every 2,000 years you have a destruction of a temple and then you have a um, passage in the Zohar actually relating uh, to three strongholds falling on September 11th, the equivalent date being given through the Zohar. And then you have Crowley emphasizing the shift of the eon, that he's delivering the law for the eon, and how immersed in false flag terrorism Crowley actually was, and how we have the the most profound um, you know, example of false flag terrorism in the Western world happens to fall within the prophesized time frame. Like that, I, and then how well that relates to Crowley with its own symbolism of Joachim and Boaz of establishing strength. This is Libra Oz, you know. Like the, what the fuck, you know? I mean, what would you, what would you say, Kevin, is the relationship between Libra Oz and the Book of Law? Do you, are you able to exp- expound on that kind of thing? 
Um, well, I mean, there's there's certainly some interesting stuff that ties into the present Aeon and and what Libra's is, I guess. But um, I mean, it's to me, it's it's um, <laughs> I don't know. To me, it's it's a it's a very perfect uh, kind of expression of man's you know divine right on the planet as a as a free being you know um it's certainly you know something i uh understand and uh you know live in tune with you know um it can be interpreted all kinds of intense ways and stuff and um it has its place in intense things too but uh yeah i mean i think it's a fascinating piece you know um how does it play into the book of the law? I, I think it. I think it emphasizes uh, some of what what Hadith embodies. Um, I think it reveals a little bit about the symbolism of the goat in general uh, as something that's been misinterpreted as you know the earth uh, rising up and you know reaching its peak. Um, you know, the striving of the, the earthly physical nature toward the highest. Um, right. Being well, more than anything, there. when I think of the goat, I just think of the animal that doesn't stick with the herd, but makes his own way. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's that. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a, uh, one of the only animals that can just like run up a mountainside, like really badass too, you know? So that, that's always a really cool. Isn't it a she goat though? Cool. 77. Uh, if you're replying to Gamatria, uh, of of Oz seventy seven and to say it's a goat it's actually particularly a she goat which is really interesting considering I mean it's not a gazelle but a gazelle is a symbol of Shakina which is very you know it's a feminine goat like creature I guess you could say almost but um, yeah, and, and then you think about uh, Atu fifteen uh, the fifteenth tarot trump the devil and the goat and Crowley's got something there that's really interesting that phallic pillar. Um, that is, uh, it represents that striving from the lowest to the highest that both the goat and Capricorn and, uh, Saturn even, you know, resonate and stuff. So that Shekinah or that, you know, that, uh, vessel for divine energy to travel from heaven to earth kind of mm-hmm. is, is hinted at in there. There's that symbolism present. So that's really interesting that you've got that 77 goat, she goat connection, that's all right, and she's also she's she's the gazelle, but she's also the rainbow, and uh-huh. so you know that Kabbalists traditionally this is kind of funny, but if they if they see a rainbow, they're not they're supposed to turn away from it, and they they're supposed to traditionally relate to a rainbow as if it's the naked body of Shakina, so it's the closest oh, no, representation beautiful. of Shakina in the world of form is the rainbow. And so when they see a, see a rainbow, out of respect, they're like, oh, I'm sorry. It's as if you caught Shakina stepping out of the shower or something. <laughs> That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> um, if I could chime in while we, while we were on the subject of um, Libra's and the Law of the Strong and uh, that slave shall serve uh, comment. Um, I just wanted to throw in like a little bit of my, my perspective on that line um, as somebody who's, you know, worked with and interpreted the book over a while and... Um, you know, had had come back to it many times. I'm sure, like anyone who reads it, you know, we all glean more from it every time. Um, but I, the thing that I find that speaks to the most that the slave shall serve is that it's really that it is kind of the law of the strong, and it's not this kind of, uh, it's not quite this every man for himself Darwinian philosophy exactly, but it's this idea that, you know, people that want to be enslaved by belief enslaved by limitations of of the mind and and morality and and any kind of limitation they will that's a choice they make so we can't we can't enlighten people you know we can't force people to acknowledge their own divinity or realize their own godhood or part in the grand you know architecture of everything so that's kind of what i get from some of these um you know, seemingly kind of like martial vibes that come out of this stuff. The slave shall serve to me can be read. And and that's the beautiful thing about any kind of spiritual or metaphysical text is that it has so many implications, you know, the Kings of the earth will be the Kings forever and the slave shall serve. So 
you know, there's always the the idea that, you know, certain people are, are suitable to rise to certain um, levels of influence and then um, their influence is then uh, transmitted through, you know, other people. And, uh, and it's, it's, there's a lot of ways that we can interpret that, that section of the book of the law. But what we, you know, what's interesting there is too, is that, you know, a king may choose his garment as he will. There is no certain test, but a beggar cannot hide his poverty. Right. So, yeah, exactly. uh, Dude, totally. um, So yeah, that's something I wanted to chime in on because. So can we never, mm, I mean, like, I agree with your interpretation. I do. But let me just put this out there. In the Bible, there's all kinds of crazy shit. And often we criticize the shit out of the Bible because of the crazy shit it says. And so often we're not having these sorts of sophisticated conversations about, well, is the Bible really saying this about taking slaves and whatever, castrating them? Is, is that all symbolic? Is that literal? What did they really mean there? Most time what we take as it now is that, okay, the Bible is this thing that's used to control people and it's been it's both an amazing force in western culture and should be studied but it's also this political tool used to enslave people so is it possible that thelema could just be the same thing only a thousand years later so even if you're yeah it's trying to do it's everything all at once like Mm -hmm. you codify any of this or you turn anything into much of a i don't know it's it's a scary idea to me that it's I, like I said, I agree with your interpretation. I think it's correct, but I don't yeah, know. Where, where would you keep it once you codify this stuff? It, no, it's kinda, no. it can be so easily abused. No, there's something that has oh, to be yeah. taken into account. And that's like, if, if you're looking, there's a number of examples, but the most direct one is if you look at the Book of Thoth, especially when he, he goes into the fool and the symbolism of the fool um, as the, the outcast uh, who's just, you know, who's got nothing. You know, it's like um, Velvet Underground, sweet nothing. You know, she ain't got nothing at all. There's, you know, and which is the meaning of Shakina as well as the poor one. That's other than dwelling. You know, she's related to as as the poor one. She's she's got nothing. That's her her exile. Um, Interesting. And so, you know, you and then considering too the amount of influence, not from the Golden Bough, but from what the Golden Bough is speaking to. In terms of the, the the ritualistic killing and the the cycle of the king, but how this translates for the entire kingdom, it's not just about the king. It's about that there's this kind of like um, this is a cycle that things go through. And uh, he was very well aware of the meaning of the slave who challenges the king and takes on the king's throne and the importance of that ritual and the perversion of it today, where they won't allow that to happen. Traditionally, in various cultures, you would have this understanding that the thing would stagnate if it was just kept within the family, and that it, you had to have something to throw off the inertia, and that's the meaning of the ritual, Diana's Mirror, and Nemi or whatever, you know, the um, the lake where they would originally ritualistically pull the, the, the bow to challenge the king. And so, he knows the significance of... He's given every indication that he's aware and not just aware of, but recognizes the importance of that process of renewing the kingdom. And so he's like, well, this is the direction you guys want to go. I think what I take from Crowley is that he's like Mr. Self-Destruct. Like he's like, oh, you want to go there? Well, then go there all the way and have faith that in the end, the the stone that you got, you fuckers rejected is going to be back in its rightful place and it's, it's a recognition of something beyond what the people th- what their plots are and so he does he doesn't look at the plots ultimately that seriously he thinks it's a big fucking joke because in the end it'll be a joke and so they think that they're reaping benefits when in fact it's their own demise um and well, so he's kind of playing on that. Well, I guess my question is like, if this is just a new, the newest codification of shamanism, which is what all religions are, and it's never worked, do we really think this I'm has sorry, the I answers? I don't know if I really followed that as an as an absolute. There, could you restate that? That you think- sh- religion in its institutionalized forms, in when its you absolute- trace them all back, mostly it's all traced back to shamanism in some way, shape, or form. The anarchist religion 
the primordial thing you could trace back to shamanism in almost all cases is you disagree Shaman, okay well i mean specific if you want to get technical though i mean shamanism is applied to to one particular tribe uh, okay so let's had, just which had its very specific you know things to determine it as shamanism but now it's been used as a blanket statement which is still relatively vague um if you're referring to the idea of shamanism that you have one person that's that's affecting a community uh, and that they're all tied to that person. I mean, that's traditionally what the meaning of shamanism is, um, is that this person's experience is affecting uh, everyone else's experience. And, they, you know, he's not a leader, but he's who's looked to for insight into the other realms, you know. Did you just see what I'm aiming at, kind of, at all? Kind of, yeah. I just, I don't... I don't... Like, if he got it so much... Why is he going out of his way to codify something that's never been successfully codified and it always becomes dogmatic and polarizing? And while he went further than I'd say other people did in saying, don't trust me completely, look into everything yourself. And so in that way, I totally respect the line of thinking. I resist the codification of much of anything, let alone right. a system of self-discovery, which is really what we're talking about with any spirituality. So right. I think... In a certain sense, I like a lot about the Lima, but I think a lot about it's bullshit in that right. sense that you're codifying something that you can't codify and it's dangerous to do it. Well, you got to look at how it's qualified in the Lima. And this is something I'm sure Kevin's well aware of is that there's, cer there's certain assumptions like. Yeah, but I'm just saying that before that gets lost in time, that'll get lost. Maybe. I mean, it always uh, does. Yeah, I mean, uh, it always does. Well, who's it getting lost by? That's the thing. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Um, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, yeah, I think I think the critical approaches to be had uh, by everybody engaging anything, you know, so um, it's it's for me as a person who identifies as a thelemite, it's it's just something that if you if you read the book, if you read the, you know, the other, you know, holy books, as they're called and stuff, you know, the vision and the voice and um this for me this this painted a a complete picture of of the most up to date uh up, upgrades and updates to the esoteric tradition or or to the to the spiritual uh traditions of you know the east and the west and mm -hmm. for me it's just something that uh i i i read this book years ago and it impacted me in a in a strange way that touched all the anarchist chords in my being it it spoke to the way that I felt uh, cradled by the universe as a, a great goddess, you know, already I, I didn't, I was just a, you know, curious person before I took on some of the, uh, these kind of shamanic perspectives that come with, you know, investing yourself in a certain path or ontology and stuff. And so for me, it's just, and I'm, you know, like I said, my background really came from anarchist philosophy of, uh, you know, Peter Kropotkin and Michael Bakunin, who is a strong atheist, you know, and I was a strong atheist up until I had a kind of near death experience kind of thing. So, um, I came to it very critically, but it spoke my language and, um, it's, it's potencies, even though veiled, um, resonated in my, my heart. And I knew that there was more to learn about all the, the veiled symbolism, but it's something that, you know, year after year, it speaks its own truth to me more and more. And it's just something that I accept as a work of genius. Um, and I'm not trying to say that Aleister Crowley, the identity was a constant genius, but no. I, to me, to me, genius is presented in the, um, in the ontology, in the, there, there's just a certain, and it's like, I can't even really yeah, begin yeah. to kind of verbally, uh, express how years of uh, studying the work and, you know, having some of your own practice kind of fills out a universe for you. But this was the, the, the ontology I was waiting for. And it's not the only ontology. I mean, I, I, I study so many different things and I, I mix it up and I don't, you know, this isn't to me the, uh, this isn't the end of anything, you know, this is just uh, some great stuff to take in and keep going forward, you know, so there's, there's so much danger in any idea that this is it or that you stand still or that you hold everyone to, uh, you know, up against it or anything, you know, so there's so much responsibility you have when, when approaching these things as, as something like spiritually potent or holy or whatever. But for me, it was something that it just, 
with the investment of, of understanding and, and practice and, uh, and it just striking the right chords, it's, it's, um, it's not something that I take lightly, <laughs> you know? So, mm-hmm. um, you, that's the thing, you know, it's, it's something that if it's really your thing, if it's really, if it's really meant for you to speak the language and, and get into it, then you will be attracted to it. You will get it. And, and some people, it's just not the thing. But the interesting thing to me is that, uh, the Thelemic philosophy, um, the underlying spiritual anarchism of it that declares that every man and woman is a star and, and that declares that, you know, planet earth is, is a place is the dwelling of divinity and, and the things that it implies, um, that, that underlying philosophy, I think is the most reasonable state that people in the modern world might find themselves at anyway. So to me, Thelema represents like something that is, that brews deep down and is deep down somewhere going on. It's not the only thing going on. There's a lot going on, but that to me, the, the core of these things is present regardless because we all appreciate freedom. We all appreciate love. And, and so these, the core things that kind of, uh, constitute the Lima to me are the constitution of the world as it is. So, and this is just to me. So it's, um, something that I, I think, deep study and deep connection to is, is, is going to be different for everybody. But, uh, I've found that it, um, it's kind of present regardless for me in a certain way. It's truth is, is present. Um, yeah, totally. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I sound like totally like someone who's like far in it or something. I don't, I can't see how I sound, but I'm just well, you to, were fucking uh, impacted you a- by the thing. Like that's <laughs> totally, uh, you know, uh, a- uh, reasonable response with the, the the point is is that you're you see it as an aid in your development i mean that's what mm. I, that's what my that was my ultimate reconcilement with the thing because i'd go back and forth with it i mean i gave myself a reading with the thoth tarot every day for six years you know and like and it would affect me in these ways where i would if you don't trust something but i think that's the point is it just because you don't trust something it's good that you don't trust it don't trust something right. wholeheartedly like that's and that's something that crowley himself is encouraging. He's like, if you're going to ex- explore a set of ideas, you ha- you have to scrutinize it because he, he and he himself is setting the example of that because he's scrutinizing what he was brought up with, which is just total the extreme fundamentalism. I mean, they believe that they were the only the the only people going to heaven, like, and the rest mm. of the world is going to hell, like, just like that. That's like our community. That's it, you know. And like, well, he's like he's people are fucking insane. A lot of his stuff is just a pure reaction uh, to intense dogma and um, kind of reflecting back. He's like, oh, well, I'm your shit. Well, you should be ashamed of what you ate. <laughs> and so you, you, you see that um, throughout his works. It's also just fascinating. Like, he's a case study because you're like, well, if you imagine if you're that prolific and you wrote that much and almost everything you wrote referenced this one thing, that that was a apparent phenomenon in your life. So like, I mean, he I, he hardly wrote anything that didn't reference back to the book of the law after he, after it came through. You know, I mean, it's it's everywhere. He's like, oh well, here let me let me reference. Uh, you know, uh, so it makes sense. It impacted him, even if it's not even even if it's totally malarkey. He's still like you can tell like it meant something to him. You know, um, right. I mean, he's serious about that, and it's all synchronicity. The whole basis of the thing is synchronicity. Right. That's what gets me about it, and that's why I see, like, you continue to run with these ideas that you're following, like, and you can see it in your videos, and you can see it in your work, Kevin, that you, like, you're you're reasoning out something in a very psychedelic way, which is the same, it's what you see from Thelema. It's like the essence of what you could take from the commentary in 777. You know what I mean? Where it's like you, you're, um, it's a very m- malleable thing that there's certain consistent points uh, of right. correspondence. And those points you can extrapolate like a wealth of a storehouse of information from such a small thing. Um, then you catch on to where the points of connection exist and then it just keeps going and going to a degree that it, you wouldn't think it could. And so, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah, just to relate to that. Yeah. Like I think that's, I relate to that certain kind of strange detachedness that Crowley seemed to have to the book of the law. 
uh, he even claimed he didn't quite agree with some of the things that you know he found. Well, he in said the he hated chapter. it. He said yeah, he despised yeah, totally. the book when he first came through. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's the thing. I think for him, um, I think you know, again, to me, it, it seems like it came from a an unconscious place. You know, like a, a when I say genius, I mean like the flow of some inner voice, some inner deep thing. You know. Um, and so I, I like that he always had a certain kind of detachedness um, in relation to it and a certain kind of like seeking to like understand it, even though his reason um, resisted understanding it right away and stuff. And so that's like some of the same thing, like you said, with my work is that I've picked up on these themes and I, and I try to stick with them and I just can't help but not see them and refer back to them and um I don't, I'm not trying to say um, too much, but over time it does seem like it boil, it's boiling something down and these kind of elements that recur, recur with a certain consistency that, you know, affirms a, a pattern. So I, yeah, I think that's just something interesting um, that I think is like, that's everyone, you know, you watch like a good director, you watch their career unfold or you watch a good actor or a good philosopher or anything, you know, um, it's, there's a certain thing that pulls everybody, you know, we're all getting pulled, um, toward our true, the fulfillment of who we are and stuff in some sense. So yeah, you know, Crowley wasn't perfect. No, no one's perfect and that kind of thing. But I, I do see the book of the law as something that was brewing, you know, beneath the surface. And, uh, I mean, there's so many implications you go down the line of, you know, there's there's so much to look into with it, but um, but yeah, I, I relate to that that kind of that vibe about the book, but yeah, and I I, I definitely um, I think Crowley made it very clear to uh, his students and 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 the people that were in the esoteric community that the purpose of of kind of getting these things down, like you said, is kind of reorganizing the law, you know, kind of just crystallizing what is new, but only so that it can be destroyed and replaced by some other thing by the next, you know, great philosopher or the next, uh, you know, great teacher or whatever, you know? So, um, I think that's something interesting to take into account too. Um, when thinking of, of Crowley's work is that he understands that, you know, philosophy and, and religious thought and even kind of perspectives and consciousness, um, that they have a kind of shelf life, you know, that, that, that exists. So, um, I, I, I take the lima that way too. It's, it's something that relates to the world as it is right now. It's something that I, I relate to, but I, I don't limit myself to it. And I, I don't think, um, you know, I think a lot of Thelemites also practice that kind of you know, eclectic approach to reality. Uh, I think that, you know, there's, there's obviously all kinds of different Thelemites and stuff like that, but, um, I've never met any, any two radical Thelemites that, you know, I felt were, but I also, I'm in the AA, so I don't meet that many Thelemites. Anyway, right, right. So. <laughs> totally. Like she did one thousand times before 